Well, let's go to the book of Daniel. We're doing an overview of the books of the Bible. I was talking to a friend today, a pastor friend called me and was asking me some questions about some, some things not concerning our Bible study. But he said, what are you preaching on tonight? I said, well, I've been doing, a, I've been doing an overview of the Bible. We started out in Genesis and we cover one book of the Bible every Wednesday night. That's a lot to do because Genesis is a long book and some of the other books, they're just so rich. Uh, you could spend an awful lot of time on, on every book, but that's not our purpose. So I want you to know what we're doing. Some of you are new in our study. We're giving you an overview. So we're sort of scanning what the book is about and a little bit of history behind it uh, and laying some, some uh, lessons from that. And then practically, we're trying to take a practical look at the book and determine what are the lessons what are the lessons from that book that I can draw that will impact my life? Because the Bible isn't, the Bible isn't just a history book. It's not just a book of poetry and, you know, Job and Psalms and Song of Solomon and Proverbs and things like that. It's, it's a lot deeper than that. The Bible, the Bible, with all of its doctrine and all of its lessons and all of its history um, and, and all of the stories that we find in it, the Bible has to be applied for it to impact our life. So, so um, remember what Jesus said to, to his disciples there in the upper room uh, when, when uh, he washed their feet? He said to them this, um, if ye know these things, if you know these things, the things he just taught them, if you know these things, happier ye if you do them. John chapter 13. And so it's not the knowledge. Knowledge doesn't make a man happy. Some of the most miserable people that I've ever known in my life were chocked full of scripture that they had memorized. I'm just being honest. It's just true. You know, they were proud of the fact that they knew Bible and they knew the Antichrist, his phone number, uh, had his fingerprints and what color eyes he had. So that's, that's all great. But if it doesn't impact your life, if you, if you, if you know... Uh, if you've got a lot of scripture memorized and, and, and you know how to argue a doctrine, that doesn't make you happy. And in fact, if you have knowledge and you don't put that knowledge to use, if you don't apply it to your life, to be honest with you, you'll be miserable. Sort of like sitting down on a table and eating five T-bone steaks in a row and not doing any exercise. It'll catch up to you sooner or later. So, so let's, let's apply what we learn. And that's one of the things we try to do during these studies is make application. Okay, let's look in chapter 1 of the book of Daniel. We'll begin reading in verse number 1 and, and sort of move through this first chapter uh, and then we'll have a word of prayer and then get to our study. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, unto his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, uh, Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure uh, house of his God. Let me just stop. Could I just throw out just a little rabbit trail? Let me just take a moment. I've, I've heard people preach before, and, and Bible teachers preach before, that Babylon is America. It is not. It is not. Babylon is Babylon, okay? And it was, it's talking about Shinar. He got the vessels and he took them to the palace in Shinar, okay? So Babylon is a, it's, it's a it was, it was a, the Babylonian empire. It was real. The city of Babylon was real. Shinar was real. Nebuchadnezzar was real. Uh, and, and so 
let's don't let's don't spiritualize something to where where we really miss what the Bible's teaching us. We can hyper spiritualize things and and miss the point. All right. So verse number two, um, uh, verse number three. And the king spake unto uh, uh, Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish. Uh, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science. And such had ability in them to stand in the king's palace uh, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belshazzar, unto Hananiah of Shadrach, unto Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, or with the wine that he drank, and therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink, and why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king." Then said Daniel Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenance be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, as thou seest, deal with thy servants. Now, jump down with me. Uh, in uh, verse number 19, the time is up, they're brought before the king, and the king consumed, uh, communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Shal, and Azariah, and therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. Father, help us, I pray now, and I pray you would open our hearts and our minds. Give us, dear God, from, from this great book, Lord, what it is that you would have us uh, to, to gleam. I pray that, that uh, the things we study, that you might apply them to our hearts as only you can. Only you know how to... Um, to meet the needs that we come in here with tonight. You're the only one who knows the needs. And so do thy work and we'll thank you for what you do. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. And so as we read, when the book of Daniel opens up, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has laid siege to Jerusalem. Once the city capitulates and, uh, and falls to the king, uh, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, is arrested Bounty is stolen from the temple and the brightest of the royal seed in Israel are taken captive and led back into Babylon. It describes them in verse number 4 of chapter 1 as children in whom was no blemish. 
but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. Now, that's quite a resume. I mean, if you just think about that, that's quite a resume that was written about these, these people that were taken captive from their, from their homeland, from Judah, and led into the Babylonian Empire. Among those that were taken captive uh, was Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these were young Hebrew boys that were of uh, royal lineages. They, we could say it this way, they, these guys were at the top of their class. They were the best of the best. They were the brightest of the bright. These were young men um, that, that uh, had achieved a certain level of education, being of the royal seed, and in whom, in whom they, they knew they'll be fast learners. They'll pick up our language quickly. They'll be able to serve in the king's palace. That means that they would be trusted to a degree, and, and, and they were thought to, uh, to be people of, of high character. Now, let me just let me say this, okay? When we look at the potential of these guys, and, and the things that are stated about them. And if you follow that through the book of Daniel, and you find the things that happen in the life of these three young Hebrew boys, and then Daniel himself also, we have a tendency to romanticize Daniel. I mean, I mean think, of, think of, I mean, here's a guy he purposes in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat. Wow. I mean, that's how many messages have been preached at youth camps over purposing in your heart not to defile yourself with the things the king offers the things the world offers you. That's powerful. Then we find out in, in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were called in, in the Babylonian uh, tongue, uh, the Chaldean tongue, uh, they're going to be thrown in a burning fiery furnace. And yet they would not bend, they would not bow, they would not burn. What a message. And so at youth camps all over America, that message is brought. And young people are inspired not to give in and not to, not to bow to the pressures of the world. It's powerful. Then we go over to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we find Daniel being threatened in the lion's den. And my word, he gets thrown into the lion's den. But you know what happens? God shuts the mouth of the lions. And so there's a, there's, there is in this book... There's some stories that have a tendency to romanticize. Children have been taught these stories. If, if you buy a, a kid's Bible storybook, I mean, you're going, to find, you're going to find all of these in there. And so it's quite a, it's quite a, um, a, a book uh, with characters in it that we have a tendency sometimes to romanticize these characters. And, and it's amazing. But I'd like us just for a moment, before we get into some of the meat of what we want to learn from this book, I'd like for us just for a moment, if we could, to think about what's happening. To think about what Daniel and these three Hebrew friends of his were facing. Now, there was another group of people that were, there weren't just four guys, there was another group of people that were taken, but you don't hear anything about them. And the reason you don't hear anything about them is not only did their city, Jerusalem, capitulate to Nebuchadnezzar, but when they got into Babylon, fearing, and rightfully so, fearing what might happen to them and, and being overwhelmed with the predicaments of their life, they also capitulated, not just, on a, not just on a national scale, but on a personal scale. They decided, I'm not going to fight this. I'm not going to stand against this. I'm not, I am not going to, I'm not going to be the guy that feels like he can take down Nebuchadnezzar. 
So in chapter 3, when the image is brought up, it, it, it is, historians will tell you, it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself that he built. And you're to bow down to that. Well, it, it's really good, you know, it, it's really good um, when everybody does what everybody else is doing. But here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel was somewhere else at this time, not in the locale that this happened. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow. I mean, you can stand for God in your church. You can stand for God sometimes in places where there's great encouragement. But when you stand out for God, not standing for when you stand out for God on the job, maybe sometimes in a family get-together, when nobody else is with you, when nobody else stands with you, when you're able to take a stand for God when it's the last thing that, that you would want to do and the least popular thing, that's where the statement comes in. And so that's the pressure that everybody was under. But we find these four guys particularly being willing to, to stand out for God. And I want you to realize that when they arrived in Babylon, everything that they held dear in their life was gone. Okay, These weren't kids walking in saying, Dude, I've always wanted to come to Vegas. Look at this. Well, they weren't just standing there, you know, wide-eyed and jaw-dropped at the lights and the, and the city and, and the immensity of, of the walls where the walls of Babylon were so thick that you could run three chariots side by side all the way around. It's an incredible city. But everything they loved was behind them. Behind them was their mother and father. Behind them were their siblings. Behind them, behind them... Uh, uh, were friends of a lifetime. Behind them were the fields that they played and, 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 and the brooks that they fished in. Everything that they knew and were familiar with in their life is all gone now. Suddenly, they become exiles in a foreign land and through no, no fault of their own. Family is nowhere near. Mama's not there to comfort. Daddy's not there to give wisdom. I mean, they're all by themselves in the middle of a pagan a foreign land, and they've got to figure their, their way out. I have no doubt that they were afraid. I have no doubt that their hearts were broken over being torn from their loved ones, and they had no idea what they might suffer. Now, let me just say this as appropriately as I can. Being handed over to the eunuchs of the court of the king, they would never again have any hopes of ever having a family. Okay, that was... That was surgically made impossible, okay? This is as appropriate as I can make it. Their lives were different. And, and um, I cannot possibly imagine the trauma, the utter trauma of such an experience that these men had. And, and people have faced far lesser situations in life and have been scarred for all the rest of their life. And I don't know what your past holds for you, but I, I'd like to remind you, I'd like to remind you of four young men who could have been scarred, who could have been bitter, who could have, who could have complained about the unfairness of life and who could have been given over to anger. They could have pointed their finger at God for the unfairness. Uh, and yet, in fact, the reality is in this book. You know what stands out most about these four young men is their faith the depth of their conviction. Just because life turned bad 
did not mean that, 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 that God had turned bad. They didn't blame God for all of this. It wasn't their fault, but they had enough they had enough wherewithal about them to realize it also wasn't God's fault. You know, if there's anything as a pastor that disturbs me in the day and age in which we live, it's all the finger pointing at God. Life goes bad on somebody and the first thing they want to do is say, well, God didn't, God, God wouldn't, God... No, no, no. Listen to me. God handed us something perfect and we fumbled it way, way back in the garden. There would be no cancer. There would be no heartache. There would be no scars in life had man taken what God had given him and, and used it uh, for God's glory. But instead of that, man used it for his own self-will. And it was man's self-will that got him in trouble then. And it is man's self-will that gets us in trouble even to this day. Now, I want to take our discussion, if we could, and I want to divide it, I want to divide it into two parts. First of all, prophetic, the prophetic part of Daniel because it's a very prophetic book, and I want to talk with you about some of those things. And then second of all, I want to talk with you about the practical aspect of Daniel, okay? So let's start off, first of all, prophetically. Now, don't miss what I'm fixing to say. I am certain that you cannot understand the book of Revelation without understanding the books of Daniel and Ezekiel. And everybody I know that gets off base in their prophetic view of the end times are people that take Revelation and set it off by themselves, and they Americanize it and Westernize it. Listen to me. Revelation is not an American book. This Bible is not an American book. Okay. We have to view the things that are written in the Bible to a certain degree by the, by the culture in which it was written. And then we have to take our culture and, 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 and make our culture fit this. We don't make the Bible fit our culture. Okay? And, and so just like I was talking about a while ago, guys walking around preaching uh, that, you know, that, that America is Babylon. That's, that's, that is the most ridiculous interpretation I've ever heard of any prophetic thing in the Bible. It's, it's, it's not so. But because of the fact that you act like Daniel's just a story of four kids who were really tough, you know, and Ezekiel's this priest that was down by the river Kibar and, you know, uh, had some weird things God asked him to do. His wife died and he couldn't even cry. I mean, we give these as stories. No, 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 no. These, these books... And, and, in, and to a certain degree, Jeremiah also, these books are all, they're all co-joined together. They are the books of prophecy. Revelation, Revelation finishes it up, but you can't jump to the end without understanding the beginning and the things that, that God has to say here. And so it's important that we understand that, that, that Revelation is not written to the Western world. It is in connection with what God writes and says in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and uh, Daniel, and that's important. Now, let me give you a couple of things. Let's just walk through the chapters. Chapter number one, Daniel and his, his friends, which we know more popular Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they purpose in their heart not to eat the king's meat, not to defile themselves. A great chapter. Chapter number two, the king has a dream. 
And in that dream, of course, he sees an image. I don't have time to go into all that and the feet and the clay and the brass. I, I, don't, I just can't. We, we'll never get out of this, okay? But he couldn't remember what his dream was. And so Daniel, Daniel prays, and, and of course, the king's going to wipe everybody out that can't tell him his dream. How many of you have ever had a dream you couldn't remember? I've done that. I like, wake up, wait a minute, what was that? What? Man, I remember this dream and I can't, I can't pull it out. Well, that's what the king did. So the king, being a nice guy, calls all of his wise people together and says, tell me the dream or you die. Okay, and so somebody said, I know a guy that can do it. Help! So they bring Daniel in and Daniel says, it's not of me. By the way, that's a huge statement. That's a message in and of itself. Well, king, um, if you'll just give me about 20 minutes, I'll come back and shock you with what I'm... No, Daniel said, hey, don't look at me. It's not of me. I can't do this. It's bigger than I am. But I know a God who can, who can tell you exactly what your dream is. And so he revealed to him that the dream of the dream and its meaning. He, he dreamed, first of all, there, there was the, the first world empire. And you can go back and look at this later. First world empire is Babylon. Second world empire, and history tells us this by now, is, is Media Persia. The third world empire is the Grecian empire. And the fourth, the last of the Gentile empires is Rome. Okay, that's the last of the Gentile empires that would rule the world. Chapter 3 comes along and they face the burning fiery furnace, okay? And, and we know the story of that. We'll talk about that in just maybe a little bit more in, in a little bit. In chapter 4, he interprets the, 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 the prideful king's dream about the tree, okay? Remember God said to, and you ought to go read the book if, if you're not familiar with this, but God said to Nebuchadnezzar, you, you think you're somebody. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, you're going to wander around like a beast in the field and you're going to eat grass, Really? King Nebuchadnezzar? No way. That ain't happening. It did happen. And when he came to the other side of that, guess what? His pride was adios. His pride was gone. Okay? I hate to use fluent foreign language with y'all like I just did. But anyhow, that means goodbye. And so, so, so yeah. I mean, it, it's, and, and so God taught Nebuchadnezzar a lesson. Okay? And um, pride will bring us to that point. Chapter 5 Belshazzar was a king. What a chapter. What a chapter. Remember this? Look, they're having this big banquet. And all of a sudden, guess what shows up? A hand. Well, where's the body? I don't know. There's a hand on the wall. Now look at me. Listen to me. In the South, we call it hauling buggy. That just means fast, okay? So if I'm in a banquet room and a hand shows up on the wall, if you don't have a door near me, tell me where you want the door because I'm going to make one, okay? I'm out of dodge. I'm, I mean, quickly. So this hand shows up on the wall, and many, many tell Fark, whatever, Fark, and I, I can't remember exactly what it was written, but he, he writes on this, this wall, and, and it, it literally means, Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Well, guess what happened? The thing that happened was that, that uh, Babylon fell to the Medes, and Darius became king. I mean, boom, what a story. Hand, and, and look, even in the secular world, somebody will say that. Well, I could see the handwriting on the wall. Now, Coach didn't, he didn't win enough games. We, we saw the handwriting on the wall way before they fired him. Okay, it's, it's, it, comes from this, it comes from this chapter. Daniel chapter 6, he's in the lion's den. In chapter 7, Daniel prophesies about the Gentile world powers and the Roman Empire, and the ten-nation federation that will rise during the tribulation period. 
I couldn't find it. Oh man, I've got it somewhere. But I've got, I've got in my possession a euro. Okay. I got it when I was in Europe. I, I got a euro. If you flip that euro over, you know what's on the back of it? It's got a woman riding a beast. That's so fascinating. I mean, these people are doing things prophetically and they don't even know it. They're so ignorant of the Bible. So on the back of their coin, on the back of their euro, there's a woman riding a beast. Revelation chapter you know, 16, 17, 18, it's all in there. It's, it's an amazing thing. And, and Daniel sees the Ten Nation Federation, uh, much like the European common market, they're going to bond together and going to ultimately rule the world. And the last Gentile last Gentile world power that will rule that ten-nation federation um, is, is, is Rome. In chapter 8, we read about the dissolution of the Grecian Empire. Uh, Alexander the Great is in there. He dies. He divides his kingdom into four parts. One of those is Antiochus Epiphanes. If you know anything about him, he offered a sow on the, on the altar of the temple. And from that, you know, they, they, the, the, the Jewish holiday uh, is, is celebrated yearly because the candelabra burned and Epiphanes, you know, he named himself Atticus Epiphanes, talking about it's, it's a name that means the illustrious one. So you can tell he had a problem with pride. Now that brings us up to chapter 9. So here's what I want us to take just a moment and in, in camp at for just a few minutes in chapter number 9 of the book of Daniel. So I want you to turn there to Daniel chapter 9. If you know anything about prophecy, you have heard this phrase before, Daniel's 70 weeks. Okay, Daniel's 70 weeks. Anybody that's gone very far in prophecy, you've heard about the, the 70 weeks of Daniel. So I want you to look with me in chapter number 9 and let's look in verse 24. Daniel chapter 9 verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now, let me stop and say this. Those are not weeks of days. Those are weeks of years. And that is something that is used in the Bible. And you can, some of this is hindsight. We can look back at what happened. And this didn't happen, this didn't happen, this didn't happen in uh, 70 weeks of days but it did happen in 70 weeks of years. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Why? Number one, to finish the transgression. Look at it. So, so, so why the 70 weeks? Number one, finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sin. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up the vision and prophecy. And number six, to anoint the most holy. Now, somebody give me a hint at who you might think the most holy is. Jesus, right, the Lord Himself. So, at the end, at the end of Daniel's 70 weeks, what's going to happen? The, the Lord is going to be anointed, okay? So he's going, to be, uh, he's going to be back on the throne here in this world. Now, um, so, so the weeks of years, so one week equals, one week of years equals seven years. All right, so we, we all understand. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks. Okay, 
So we're talking about at the very beginning, the, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Is a, it, it's initially, it takes seven years, 49 years to, to, to complete that, and three score in two weeks, okay? That's, three, that's 434 years. The street shall be built again in the wall even in troublous times, okay? So when you take the 49 years and the 434 years, you've got 483 years. I know this is confusing, and that's why I'm giving it tonight, is to confuse you and give you something to think about. So I, I want you to understand, I'm, I'm joking, people. So, so Daniel, if, if, you, if you follow this out as these weeks of years, Daniel is saying this, from the going forth of the commandment of Artaxerxes, okay, to rebuild the wall to the cutting off of Messiah is 483 years. You can put a calculator on it, okay? If you go into history and you find where Christ, where, where Christ was crucified and you apply that to it, you come to the understanding exactly what he was talking about. For from that decree until the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary, it comes out to 69 of these weeks, to 483 years. That leaves seven years left to complete what does it say in verse number 24? 70 weeks. Okay? So everybody with me? Artaxerxes says rebuild the wall. All the way till the cutting off Messiah is 483 years. Where's the last seven years? It's Daniel's 70 weeks. But wait a minute. That didn't happen after Calvary. Why? Because there is a parenthetical age in the Bible. Let me explain it to you this way. God, God's got His prophetic stopwatch. God's got His prophetic stopwatch. And at 483 years, at 483 years, the stopwatch prophetically is pushed. And in the middle of all this is something that you don't find prophets even talking about. It's called the church age. Okay. It's when, it's when the book of Romans says Gentiles are grafted in. Remember in the early church, they had struggled with coming to the point that Gentiles were going to be a part of the church. Okay. So, so he punches that stopwatch. And in that parenthetical part of Scripture is what we call the church age. God now is dealing, God is now dealing with the church, which is a mixture of every kindred and tongue and type and color and everything. The New Testament church was a melting pot. It wasn't just to Jews. In fact, there were struggles with all that. It was to the whole world. At the end of that will be the rapture. When the rapture takes place, you won't find the, the word church in the book of Revelation after the first three chapters where he's dealing with the churches of Asia Minor. So the saved are out. Okay. I'll show you that. And so, so now who's he dealing with again? He's dealing with the Jew. That's what the, that's what the book of Revelation, that's what the book of Revelation over. Look with me, um, verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for, him, not for himself, by the way. He's dying for everybody. And the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay. And the end thereof shall be with a flood until the end of the war of desolations are determined. And he shall confirm, that's the prince, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Okay, that's how many years? 
seven years, all right? So this is the tribulation period. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice, the oblation to cease, and the overspreading of abominations he shall make desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So this is what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. So, so look at me. All right, seven weeks. One, we got one week left. We got 69 weeks of, 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 of Daniel's vision fulfilled up until the cutting off of, of Messiah. Now, now there's a week left. That starts after the rapture when the tribulation has begun. And, and, and in the middle of the week, which is three and a half years, the prince, the, the Antichrist, goes into the Jewish temple and... and, and sets an image up to himself, or he, 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 like Atticus Epiphanes, he offers a sow on the altar. He desecrates the altar, and it's called the abomination of desolation. I want to tell you something about the Jewish people. You can do anything you want to, and, and they're adaptable. But you mess with the temple, and you've got problems. I've actually seen the cornerstone of the new temple that they're going to erect where the Dome of the Rock is now, the Mosque of Omar that's not even a true mosque. And, and so um, the thing that the Antichrist is going to do that's going to shock the world is going to be a supercharged Camp David accord where he's going to get the Jews and the Arabs to agree to live peaceably and the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt. And I've been in the Temple Institute where every single garment that the priests need, the priests have trained. You can walk in and see it all. It's there. They have the candelabra already built. I mean, everything's there except the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've seen Indiana Jones, you know exactly where that's at. And so... Uh, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on about where it's at. A, group, a tribe in Ethiopia have got it, and, and I know of a... I know of, of a, of a um, anyhow, I, it's, it's, it's fascinating. There's been people... I've been down in the, in the tunnels underneath, and Merkahana, a rabbi, held a, held a glass around a corner, and breath went on it, and it was the Shekinah glory of God. And I don't believe it, but I'm just simply telling you that, that uh, everything there, literally, all of the garments, the harps, everything is ready right this moment for, for the temple to be in place except the, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, could we, could we do this? Uh, yeah, jump with me into Matthew chapter 24. Let me, let me show you what Jesus said. Go to Matthew 24. And then I want to I want to I want to say I want you to just go there and park for just a second. Matthew 24, put it in park, and take your foot off the gas, and let me let me say something to you that's very 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 important. Okay. Now in Matthew chapter 24, this is this is something that that you have to understand if you're going to understand. This scripture. Everybody look at me. This is so important for you. Matthew 24 is not written for the Gentile in the age in which we live. This is a Jewish chapter. People say, Pastor, I read Matthew 24, that he that endureth to the end shall be saved. It's talking about the tribulation period. It's talking about the end times. You're not going to be fleeing. You're going to be raptured. This doesn't apply to you. 
But the old Jewish rabbis that go through that, there are places in the scripture I don't have time to run to, but it, it tells you that they're going to go to the Bible and they're going to find out who is it that's coming. That's the king of glory that's got blood on his garments after the battle in the valley of Megiddo. Okay. And so, so look with me, look with me, Matthew 24, look with me in verse 15. Jesus speaking, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let them which are on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe to them that be with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now for then, for then, for then there shall be great tribulation, okay? Uh, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. I've been in the rose-red city of time, Petra, which is a place in Jordan where it's believed that the Jewish people will probably go to. But the, but the, Jewish, the Jewish rabbis are going to look and say, wait a minute, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So they're going to begin to realize what Jesus was saying to them, Jesus referred back to Daniel and he's talking about what's happening in the world during, during the uh, tribulation period, okay? So, now, now stay with me and i got to move. When Jesus was crucified, what was the empire that was in place? What was it? The last of the Gentile powers. Now, now stay with me. There's a parenthetical time we call the church age. So when you come through the parentheses, the rapture takes place, and you get to the end of the parentheses, guess who's going to be back in power? The same guy that left off back here, the Roman Empire. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 talks about the city on seven hills. I toured Rome a number of years ago, and we had a guide, and I said to her, I said, you know, I've heard before, and I knew the answer, but I just wanted to, you know, pick her mind on it. I said, you know... I've heard that Rome was a city of seven hills. Is that right? And she said, absolutely. That's what we're known as. I said, could you show me the seven hills? And she said, um, yeah, as we ride along. She said, I can't just say there's seven. I, but as we ride along, I'll point them out to you. And so she did. We, we went into the Vatican. And it is in, by the way, it's the only church in the world that has an ambassador appointed to it from the United States. It's a sovereign power. So in, in, um, uh, in Revelation 17 and 18, it talks about that city on seven hills being the religious headquarters of the one world religion. There'll be a one world government, one world monetary system. Okay, all, that, all that's coming, okay? One world court. We've got a world court today, okay? There'll be a, you've got the euro. We'll have a one world monetary system. We're, we're, we're getting cashless as it is now anyhow, okay? Now, now, go back to Daniel, all right? We're in Revelation, but let's go back to Daniel. Watch this. Look at me in Daniel chapter 24. All right, remember, remember the 70 weeks, okay? 70 weeks. 69 of them 
69 of those weeks lead up to the crucifixion of Jesus, the, parent, the, the parenthetical age, and then the 70th week, the final week of years, the final seven years, okay? Daniel's 70th week is the tribulation. Now watch this. Watch this. Look in chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon who? And upon who? Wow. Now look at me. Everybody look at me. The purpose of the 70th week of Daniel is thy people and thy city. That's not Gentiles. That's the people of Daniel. The reason for the tribulation period is not so that God can purge the church. If that's true, then why didn't He purge the other generations? Why do I have to be purged and my parents didn't? Why do I have to be purged and Spurgeon didn't? And Moody? And the generations before us? So, so that, that, well, He has to have a purged church. No, 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 no. He, he, he does that through His Word. The purpose of the tribulation period, the church isn't even mentioned after chapter 3. The purpose of the tribulation period, people that say, well, God's through with the Jew, that's because they don't connect. And I'm saying this, it's just, and I've got friends, I'm just saying this honestly. They don't, they, don't, they don't understand the connection between Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation. You can't hang it out there by itself. Okay, You can't do that. That's, you, you can't treat the Bible that way. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy people city. So the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period, is for the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. And there's no way you can get around that, I don't think. Anyhow. Now, chapter 10 through 12, fascinating chapters. Prophetically, they continue to deal with world powers from Darius unto the end times. So that's prophetically an overview. It's a big scan in a quick scan, but it's an overview of the book of Daniel. Now let me give you some practical applications, okay? Let's apply some things out of the book for us practically. Number one practical application I want you to remember is this. The world wants to change our diet and our identity. That's the first thing that happened when they got into Babylon is they said, okay, we're going to change what you're feeding on. We're going to change what you're eating. We're going, to, we're, going to give you, we're going to give you the king's course. We're going to give you what the king thinks would be best for you. And, and then he changed their names, you know, uh, uh, Belteshazzar, uh, Hananiah, uh, you know, Meshach, uh, Abednego, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were Jewish boys that now are carrying Chaldean names. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he had not defile himself with the king's meat. Now let me just stop and say something to our young people here. Okay, all of our young people that are here, I'm grateful for you. Love you. Thank God for you. I know they had a great meeting the other night and planning for, for the future. we got a great youth department. I'm thankful for Chad and Georgia and what they do. But let me say something to our young people. You're not going to be able to live on your mom and daddy's faith forever. Okay. There's going to come a time in your life where you're going to have to purpose in your own heart. Mom and daddy were a long way off from Daniel. Nobody was there to encourage him. Couldn't go to Sunday school. Didn't have his own Bible. Okay. As far as we know. I mean, Daniel, Daniel the, the reality of Daniel's life is Daniel, Daniel now all of a sudden found himself extraordinarily isolated in the middle of a pagan world that was trying to change his identity and change what he ate. 
And I want to just tell you this, the world will feed you the slop that it has and will try to alter who you are and alter your condition. And may God give us a generation of young people that will purpose in their heart to be different. Just to be different. And I look back over my life and remember temptations and things my friends tried to get me to do. And I thank God that I was saved at the age of 12. And even though I didn't know everything that was going on then, the Holy Spirit of God set off a, a, a hornet's nest within me and disturbed me so that I could not do the things that everybody else was doing. And I'm thankful for that. Look at me. Listen to me. It won't hurt you if you never touch a drop of liquor. In fact, it'll help you. It, it won't hurt you that, that you never find out what it means to get high. That, won't, that, that doesn't make you less. That makes you more. Don't, 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 don't go. We got people in this room that would stand up right now and say, don't do it. Don't do it. It turned my life into a living hell. Don't do it. You can keep your purity. You can keep your decency. You don't have to let the world change who you are. Make up your mind, bow up your back, dig in your heels, look people in the face that are trying to get you to do the wrong thing and say, I'm not doing it. I'm just not doing it. And, and if they don't respect that, the reality of you don't need them as your friends because they're not friends to begin with. Listen to me. I've got to move to my next point. Surround yourself, young people, listen to me. Surround yourself with people where you don't have to be different to be a Christian. Hang around the crowd where you don't have to be different as a Christian because there's life after teenage years and you're going to live those years and, and you want to live them right. Number two, um, God will more often save us in the furnace than He does from the furnace, okay? More than likely, God's going to save you in the furnace, not from the furnace. Chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, Bow to the image, are. And they didn't bow. So you know what Nebuchadnezzar did? He, he sort of played in the part of the devil then. He said, look, I'm going to give you one more shot. Can I tell you this? The devil will come back to you and, and, and offer you a better deal. And he said, now if you don't bid, I'm going to heat the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been heated. Well, what does that mean? You're either burned or crispy. It doesn't matter. If you're in a furnace, it doesn't matter if it's one hot or seven times hotter. You're, but the devil will call your bluff. He'll say, it's going to be really bad. It's going to be really bad. No, God's able to protect you. And, and so he saved the three Hebrew children in the furnace, not from them. Remember when Jesus said, go out, get on a boat, and go to the other side, and a storm arose, and they thought they were going to die? You know how he saved them, not from the storm, in the storm. Daniel chapter 6, he saved Daniel not from the lion's den, he saved him in the lion's den. Acts chapter 12, he saved Peter uh, in, uh, and Barnabas in the jail, not from the jail. So sometimes God will let you go through hard situations. Why? Because saving you in it gives more glory and impacts more people than saving you from it. You know? And you never, somebody said, you never, you never know the value of the anchor until you feel, feel the weight of the storm. And that's so very true. Sometimes God lets us feel the storm. Number two, three, I want to say this to you, and that is that furnace experience do not mean that God is angry at you. Furnace experiences don't mean that God's angry at you. We've, we've gotten that sometimes from televangelist preachers on TV, that they preach a prosperity gospel, and that if you do right, everything will turn out right. And if you do right, God will, 
treats you right, and if God, if something goes wrong in your life, you better figure out where you're, where you're, you know, displeasing God. I, I was playing basketball years ago. I was young. Young. I was, I don't know, I was 20, like 22 or something like that. I went up for a jump shot, and a kid came running behind me and, and just nailed me in the back. I knew something was wrong when my, when my head was laying on the floor behind me, okay? I mean, it just reached my back horribly bad. So, I mean, it was bad. So I wound up in the hospital, and they, they put me on muscle relaxer and, and was working on me to try to get things back. I remember a guy came to visit me. I'll never forget. He came up to me, and we visited for a moment, and then he got up to leave, and he walked over to me and said, Preacher, I want to ask you one question. I want you to think about this. I don't want you to answer. I just want you to think about it. What did you do wrong for God to do this to you? And then he walked out of the room. And I just thought, what an encouragement. You know, it's not exactly bedside manners. Now look at me. Your tire went flat. God's after me. No, 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 no. Look, do you know why Daniel was in the lion's den? Because he was obeying. God was pleased with him. You know why the three Hebrew boys went in the furnace? Because God was pleased with them. You know why the disciples were in the storm? Because God was pleased with them, you know. So don't, don't, don't get to the point to where we feel like that, um, um, that, 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 that God's angry with us. In fact, the reality of the matter is sometimes God allows us to go through hard situations because we learn more there in the valley than we do on the mountaintop. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way and left me none the wiser for all she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow, and not a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I'm going to tell you, you'll learn some things when your heart aches that you'll never learn when the sun is shining and you're on top of the mountain. Number four, let me say this to you. It's not as important that you see the Lord in your furnace as it is that others. So the three Hebrew children are in the furnace, okay? Nebuchadnezzar looks over and he says, wait a minute. So he calls his guys. He said, hey, how many guys did we throw in there? Uh, and, and, and they said three. And he said, that's what I thought. One, two, three, four. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 3, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar saw the Lord in their furnace, but the Bible never says they did. Well, we think they probably did. Okay, I know. Sure, I, I think they probably did, but I don't know that they did. Because God didn't say, only person God said saw the Lord in their furnace was Nebuchadnezzar. Why is that? Because it doesn't matter if you see the Lord in your furnace. What matters is that others see Him. In your furnace. You ever had something happen in your life and you said, I don't know. I can't tell you. If you ask me, if you ask me why I have stood at the graves of two of my grandchildren, I, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I don't know why. I don't understand it. But the reality of the matter is the important thing eternally 
is that we realize that God is on His throne and that God has a purpose that we might not understand until we get to the other side. You see? And so Nebuchadnezzar saw Him. Now, number, number five. It does come after four. Okay? <laughs> Math wasn't my strong subject. Okay, number five. Listen to this. How you live determines how others view God. So Nebuchadnezzar starts out by asking the, the, the Hebrew children this, and who is that God? So, so you, th you think you're not going to bow to my image and you're going to get by with this? No, no, no. I'm going to heat the furnace up seven times hotter. And would you tell me the name of the God that will deliver you from the burning fiery furnace? Well, now they've been through the furnace. He looked down and saw the Lord in it. And now Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 28 of, 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 of chapter 3, then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God, Elohim, El Shaddai, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Sabaoth. No, he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't know those names. You know what he said? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen to me. People connect God with you. You think it'd be different, don't you? But that's the way it is. People look at, people look at, at, at God as the God of Sean Ayers. Okay. The God of Max Graham. The God of Ron Steele. That people view our God by how we live before them. And Nebuchadnezzar said this, there will be no other God worshipped. If anybody speaks anything amiss, of the God of Shadrach, that God, Shadrach's God, Meshach's God, Abednego's God, I'm going to turn his house into a dung hill. Okay. So their testimony in the furnace impacted a human life. And I hope people can see Jesus in us when we're going through difficult times. Last, last is this, and that is that God is able. Now, when you go to chapter 6 of Daniel, you run into the law of the Medes and Persians. And the law of the Medes and Persians was simply this. When a king made a decree, he could not back out of it. Okay? And it doesn't matter. Well, I, I shouldn't have done that. Doggone it. I, I, you know, I, why did I do that? Why was I that impulsive? It didn't matter. When you sign the decree, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, it's there. And if you reverse the law of the Medes and Persians, boom, you're out you automatically disqualify yourself from leadership and you no longer can be a king in, in, in the empire. So there were people in the kingdom that hated Daniel. So they concocted this plan uh, that they would uh, trick the king into outlawing prayer for 30 days and the penalty of breaking the decree would be the lion's den. And so sure enough, they bring it to the king. They, they pump the king up in his pride. Nobody should be asking any petition of any man or God other than you because after all, you're our, you're our leader. And so he said, well, that makes sense. It'll make the people more you know, aware of, of my authority and my leadership. So he signs that. And then they with glee run out and say, Daniel, guess what? You can't pray anymore like you're used to praying three times a day. Well, Daniel's not a boy here. He served God his whole life. Listen to me, young people. His whole life. He's over 80 years old now in Daniel chapter 6. So what are you going to do now, old man? We're glad you went to church when you were young. That was good. 
We're glad you were involved in your youth group when you were young. You're 80 now. What you going to do now, old man? Well, he had, been, he had been too far down the road in faithfulness and serving God. Now he's 80. He's just as determined to serve God at this age as he was when he was young. And so he refuses to obey. They cart him off to the lion's den. And I have to say, one man against a den of lions, it seems pretty hopeless odds. He's not going to make it. He's not going to survive this. And so Darius now, realizing he's been tricked, is heart sick all night, can't sleep. Chapter 6, verse 20, talking about Darius. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? Is your God able, Daniel? And from the lion's den, verse 22, Daniel replies, My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lion's mouths, that they have hurt, not hurt me, for as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Yeah, God was able. And by the way, let me just throw this in because this is a... This is <laughs> they took the men that had tricked the king... They threw them in the lion's den, and the lions found their appetite. Remember the guys, the strongest of the king's men that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What happened? The, the, the flame slew them. So there's a reaping and sowing uh, uh, all, all in this. I love the story of Abraham. He's past age having a child, him and Sarah. But Romans chapter 4, verse 20 and 21 says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, listen to this, he was able to perform. So this is, this is the story of the lion's den. This is what we draw from it practically. Whatever we're facing today, God is able. Whatever it is that's plaguing us today, God is able. Whatever your predicament is, God is able. Whatever your need, God is able. God is able in your life to bring you to, bring you to the other side of things that you may have thought you would never get over. He's able to help you get past what you'll never get over. I love the book of Daniel. It's a great book, and I thank you for being here tonight. Let's pray and ask God to, to help us to learn and apply these things. Father, we love you. Thank you for your love for us, and thank you for the joy of being in your house. I pray that from this great book that you might impress upon us, dear Lord, these things. I pray that we would pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for the Jewish people, that we would pray for those organizations that are active in witnessing and telling them about their Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world. And I pray, dear God, that you would help us to learn from the practical applications, the things that we should glean from this book of the Bible. And we'll thank you for what you do and how you bless. Give us a great week as we serve you. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.